Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Bob McDonald. Welcome to Quirks and Quarks. On this week's show, changing climate and changing minds. A massive new study looks at what strategies are most effective to convince people of the need to take action. This actually might just be the most consequential and challenging of problems that humans have ever faced. And in space, no one can hear you swim. Finding liquid water in the least likely places and what it means for life. More than half of its volume is filled by liquid water. That's huge. So we probably could argue that you might have liquid water at many, many, many places in the solar system and in the universe. Plus, ocean circulation approaches a tipping point. Humpback whales traveling love songs. Marsupials sacrifice sleep for sex. And why insects step into the light. All this today on Quirks and Quarks. For decades, scientists have been sounding the alarm that greenhouse gas emissions are pushing us towards dangerous climate tipping points, where dramatic and irreversible changes will start to take place. And one of the critical tipping points has to do with melting ice caps threatening the stability of circulation patterns in the Atlantic Ocean. This ocean circulation moves heat around the world, and so if that circulation collapses there could be relatively sudden, catastrophic climate consequences. Now a new study has confirmed what scientists have long feared. We are on course toward this tipping point, and if we get there, the effects will be devastating in some regions. Dr. Rene Van Westen is the lead author of this study. He's a postdoctoral climate science researcher at Utrecht University in the Netherlands. Hello and welcome to our program. Thank you, Bob, for inviting me. First of all, describe this ocean circulation pattern and how it currently affects our climate. Yeah, so the AMOC, the Atlantic Meridional Overturn Circulation, is like a conveyor belt. So it transports heat and salinity through the global ocean. And in the surface, so in the Atlantic Ocean in specific, it transports heat and salt towards the north. And eventually it reaches Greenland, where it cools off. And here you have quite cold and saline water, which is very dense, it sinks around Greenland and then flows southward again at greater depth. So that is this conveyor belt transporting a tremendous amount of heat through the global ocean. Oh, I see. So it's warm at the surface, traveling north, and then cool in deeper water going south. That's the conveyor belt. Exactly. Now, how does that affect the climate that we feel? Yes, yeah, so the conveyor belt transports a lot of heat, for example, to Western Europe, also some bit to Canada. Uh, but Western Europe is more affected than Canada. And we're on the same latitude, Canada and the Netherlands. However, our climate is really getting warm from this conveyor belt. And therefore, our climate is way milder compared to yours. And when this thing shuts down, for example, it can really cool down our climate here in Western Europe. 
Now, is this the Gulf Stream effect that we hear about, the warm current that goes along the coast of North America, mostly in the States, and then arches out over the North Atlantic? Is that correct? Yes. Yes, exactly. And the AMOC is the complete conveyor belt, but the Gulf Stream is only a small part of that. Now, we're hearing a lot about the ice in the north, especially Greenland, is melting. What effect is that having on the conveyor belt? Yeah, that's actually a really good question. So what I mentioned before is that cold and saline water is really heavy. And if you're adding in more fresh water, you are diluting the ocean salinity and therefore it becomes lighter. It sinks less and therefore its strength is partly determined by how much water sinks down near Greenland and therefore it becomes weaker. Oh, so you're cutting off the bottom part of the conveyor belt, the cooler water going south. Exactly. And that eventually also influences the northward flowing part of the conveyor belt. Now, we've been hearing about this for a while, the potential collapse of the system, and it's been studied by other groups. What were you hoping to do with your new project? Yeah, so of course, we, we need to understand what's going to happen in the real world, and therefore we use climate model simulations. So we added this fresh water in the North Atlantic Ocean, so we actually mimicked this effect of the Greenland ice sheet. And we just ramped up very gradually, and you see a gradually weakening of the circulation strength. So it goes down when you add more and more fresh water to the Atlantic Ocean until a critical point, and then you see an acceleration in its decrease, under which this AMOC suddenly collapses. So it feels like when you're walking off a cliff, it goes very gradually, and then you go down very quickly. And that's the tipping point. Exactly. And that's the tipping point. Once you go over the edge, how quickly does change happen? Yeah, so we were really surprised by these results because this wasn't studied yet. So these changes under which the, the collapse fully evolved, that takes about 100 years time within the model. And that gives a lot of climate shifts and a very abrupt uh, climate impacts. And this is very severe. Keep also in mind that these changes will be on top of the already ongoing climate change. So you're having two combined effects, both influencing the regional and the global climate. So how severe then will the climate effects be once the circulation pattern collapses? So depending on the region, the impacts will be very severe. It can really accelerate your climate change. You're kind of having a shift in your precipitation patterns. Also, the sea level will rise in the Atlantic Ocean. And that all combined, it is very hard for society to adapt to these rapid and large changes. So what you're saying is it depends on where you live. Well, let's, let's take where you live. What, what's, what's it mean for Europe? Our climate will cool down by about 5 to 10 degrees Celsius. So that is quite a lot. And on top of that, we will receive less precipitation. And also the sea level in front of the, the Dutch coast will rise by about 100 centimeters. Wow. What's causing the sea level rise? So the ocean currents, they also determine how the sea level will look like. And when these currents reverse under such a collapse, also the sea level will rearrange. Okay. But you say that the the climate will still be warming. So we're still going to have a warmer Earth, but some areas are going to experience cold? Yes, exactly. So it is really counterintuitive that under global warming, that some regions will cool down while others will heat up even faster. Because we're hearing about how the northern hemisphere, especially the Arctic, is heating up faster than the rest of the planet. So could this just compensate for that? 
This could partly compensate, but on the other hand, the southern hemisphere, so Antarctica, will warm up even faster. <laughs> wow. So I'm just trying to get a picture of what the world will look like overall. Yeah, that's really hard uh, because there are so many things will shift, will rearrange, a lot of temperature fluctuations. But I think you can imagine that such abrupt changes are very severe to society. Mm -hmm. I, I guess it makes sense that if you're saying that, that uh, Europe may feel cold because the warm water is not going north, then that means that more heat will remain in the equatorial regions. Yes, and also in the southern hemisphere. Wow. So <laughs> it's, it's just a very, very different Earth that we're talking about from what we have today. Exactly. What are the observations telling you now about how close we are to this tipping point? Actually, we have conducted this climate model simulation and we have developed an early warning indicator. And now we can look what is the state of our climate using observations. And we know from observations that we are currently heading towards the tipping points. Unfortunately, the data is too short to say we are that many years before a potential tipping point. How will we know that we've actually gone over the tipping point? So at the moment, there are no signs that the current is accelerating or deaccelerating in its strength. We still see a gradual decline in its strength since 1950, so about 70 years. But we cannot say anything about that at the moment. So you don't know when the tipping point will happen, but when it does, it's going to happen quickly. Exactly. And therefore, we need to stay far, far away from this tipping point. Are you optimistic that we can adapt to that? I think there is still hope and there is still a very small window of time that we can make a transit to a sustainable uh, society, but we need to act now. And I think that's very important. What's it like working at the cutting edge of such a monumentally frightening scenario that we may soon have to face? Yeah, I, th I think it's also very exciting, but also somewhat terrifying. But we already knew that this could happen from earlier studies. Uh, I think the most important thing is that it really confirms that we already thought that such a tipping behavior in a climate model exists. And now we uh, need to further explore this and see what will happen under future climate change. Dr. Van Westen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much and also for the lovely interview. Dr. Rene Van Westen is a climate science postdoctoral researcher at Utrecht University in the Netherlands. <laughs> Picture this, sun, surf, and crashing waves with humpback whales breaching in the distance. It might be deep winter here in Canada, but around the tropical paradise of Hawaii, it's humpback whale breeding season. Thousands of humpback whales gather to meet and mate off the shores of the Hawaiian Islands every year. So if you were to stick your head underwater right about now, it's the best time to listen for their underwater song. Now, scientists have long known that humpback whales bring their songs closer to shore at night, but a new study has shed new light on why. Dr. Anka Kugler studied the humpbacks at the University of Hawaii in Manoa. Hello and welcome to our program. Hi, Bob. 
Thank you for having me. First of all, can you bring me up to speed about what was known going into your study about the whale's daily singing patterns? So we knew that apparently they increased their singing at night and they decreased their singing during the day. And that's been shown in Hawaii and in other places, but we didn't really know why. So what was the first thing you noticed when you started digging into their underwater recordings? So we added a recording station further offshore and... Looking at the data, I noticed that I actually saw the opposite pattern. So I saw an increase in singing during the day in the further offshore location. Okay, so what's the difference then in the number of whales when they're offshore during the day and when they're inshore at night? So this is something we didn't know because when we were listening to them on our recorders... We don't know how many whales there actually are that might just be quiet. We can just say we have more singing activity or less singing activity going on. But we didn't actually know whether or not this corresponded in a change in actual whales present in the different locations. So how did you go about studying that? So because we cannot resolve whether or not we see a change in number of whales present inshore versus offshore, just from listening to them, we also added visual observations from land where we can actually see them in the area at different times of the day. And we were lucky to be able to add a third layer to help understand the movement of singing whales by adding a different type of listening device that can actually pinpoint the direction of where a song is coming from to locate singing whales underwater during the day and during the night. Oh, I see. So you could not only listen to them, you could tell where they were, their position relative to each other. Exactly, yes. So what did you find? So by being able to track those individually singing whales, we showed that they're really crowded during the humpback whale season in Hawaii. And humpback whale song, it has some important function for their breeding. So it's important for them to be able to be heard by whoever they are intended to broadcast to. So we found that when they move offshore during the day, they also spread out. So they increase that distance to each other. And we think this is an attempt to reduce this interference from this cacophony of singing whales. Oh, I see. They're, they're getting farther apart from each other, sort of like uh, going to a quiet corner so you can have a more intimate conversation yes. with your partner. <laughs> yes, something like that. Correct. Yes. <laughs> So then why then do they need to move inshore during the night? Yes, this is actually something we were wondering as well. Like, okay, they spread out, they, they increase their what we call communication space to make sure they're being heard. But then why wouldn't they just stay like that? Why would they be moving back inshore at, in the evening and at night? And that was actually something that was really interesting and surprising for us to see. When we were looking at our recordings from the offshore site, we also saw an increase in background noise just around sunset. 
And we think it's related to some non-humpback biological cores migrating in the water column. It's coming up from depth at night. That's making those sounds. But we don't really know who's making those sounds. And it's really, really loud. And it's almost like now you're in your little corner, you moved away so you can have like a private conversation. And then you have like a large truck or train coming by and making a lot of noise. So you're kind of forced to find a new quiet space. Boy. So tell me more about uh, which humpback whales are doing the singing and the kind of singing that they do. Yes, so humpback whales, they're pretty famous for their song. But it's actually only the males that are singing. The females, to our knowledge, do not sing. And it's only the adult males. So that's really why we think it's some sort of breeding display. So the, the male's calling to the females, hey, I'm over here. Maybe. We actually think now that it's more like they're actually calling to other males and conveying some sort of information about their competitiveness. Now, is there any chance that uh, their moving offshore during the day might have anything to do with so many noisy humans being around in other parts of the world where they breed? Yes, we've actually been wondering about that too, and we don't think this is the reason in Hawaii, because obviously we, during the whale season, we do get a lot of whale watching, and there are increasing concerns about noise, not only in Hawaii, but really anywhere where we have whales. But from everything we've seen, vessel noise in those locations of Maui aren't really a dominant source of noise in the ocean. We don't really think it's a driving force behind the behavior we've observed. Mm -hmm. That being said, moving forward, looking into the future, we see those patterns that they're presumably really trying to um, reduce interference from background noise. Now, if we have more increasing noise from humans, then obviously this generates a problem because now we may get like this additional noise that may impact their behavior. <laughs> Maybe one of the things the whales are saying is, could everybody please be quiet? I'm trying to say something here. Something like this, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just one last thing. What's it like for you to actually put your head underwater and hear the sounds of the humpback whales? <laughs> It's really hard to describe. It's just really special to actually be able in Hawaii or in other places where they sing to be in the water and just hear them. It depends a little bit on how close the singing whale is. But if they're really close, you cannot only hear them, you can actually feel them sing. It really like reverberates your body. Wow. Dr. Kugler, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Bob. Dr. Anka Kugler is a postdoctoral researcher in marine biology at Syracuse University in New York. Australia is known for its strange creatures. Well, here's another one to add to the list. As far as appearances go, the Antichinus is fairly unassuming. This carnivorous marsupial found in Australia's forests is just a bit bigger than a mouse with a pointy nose and bristly fur. But its life cycle is what makes it truly bizarre. The Antichinus male lives for just one year, with their short lives culminating in a frenzied three-week-long breeding season 
where they can mate for up to 14 hours straight. And when mating season is over, the males all drop dead at the same time. Now, a new study is showing the true extent the antichinus will go to take advantage of their one shot at reproductive success. It turns out they'll even forego sleep for sex. Erica Zide is a wildlife biologist at La Trobe University in Australia. She led the study. Ms. Zide, welcome to our program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. First of all, tell me about this antichinus. What's it like working with them? Yeah, these antichinus, they're smaller, but they're a very strong animal. So they're a fluffy ball of fur that is actually particularly aggressive. <laughs> they always try to, to rip off your skin when you try to, to handle them. And uh, as you say, very bizarre. Yeah. Yes. I mean, how hard is it to, to catch them and work with them? Yeah, um, I found it particularly hard to, to trap them. We had a definitely a few challenges in our study. The first one definitely was trapping them. They are very elusive animals, and uh, and they don't go in the trap very easily, I would say. <laughs> if, if these animals are so hard to uh, find and, and they're aggressive to handle, take me through your study. How are you able to actually study them? Uh, what we did, yeah, at the beginning of the study, we, we went to the forest, we trapped these animals. It took it took us a lot of time to, to trap them, but we finally did. And then uh, we, we built these big enclosures where we housed them individually. And so the first animal that we trapped, it managed to escape <laughs> from <laughs> the first night. So actually, we didn't have great success at the, at the start. <laughs> Boy, but, science has to work pretty hard to get the work done here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and was a yeah was a real a, a big disappointment, and then yeah, so we had to redesign the enclosure, and then when we uh, finally, after months, managed to have our in the first year, we trapped eight animals and we studied the first eight, uh, but we didn't know how to attach the color to record their activity, and uh, we were using some microchip that I had to be on them all the time. And so I was trying to attach this collar to them, but they don't have the curve of the neck. So they were actually, I was attaching the collar and I didn't want to put too tight. So what they were doing is just slip the collar off as soon as I was releasing them. Right. Okay. So, so once you figured out how to keep the animals in captivity so they don't escape, and once you managed to figure out how to get a collar on them, how exactly <laughs> did you examine how long they sleep during their breeding season? So what, what we did is uh, first thing, analyzing their activities. So we recorded an activity and, uh, and quantified how active and inactive they were. And then we in the third year of study, I brought a subset of animals in the lab and I actually studied their brain activity. So I was able to record sleep itself. And then I combined the activity data with the brain data. And uh, we saw that when these animals stop moving after less than five seconds, they are actually asleep. Okay. So how did their sleep pattern change as they get closer to the breeding season? Yeah, when they go closer and into the, the breeding season, uh, males but not females, they increase their activity and uh, reducing their sleep. So they were losing an average of uh, three hours per night 
and this was for three weeks. But we had uh, uh, one animal in particular that uh, lost more than 50% of uh, its sleep. So wow. um, pre-breeding season, this animal uh, sleep about 15 hours per day. So, yeah, so this animal was actually losing seven to eight hours of sleep a day for three weeks. Now, I, I know when I lose sleep, I have trouble paying attention. I get cranky and yeah. <laughs> don't feel well. Did you see any signs that these animals uh, were affected by that loss of sleep? No, to be honest, uh, we, didn't, we didn't see any effect that you would easily see in humans. I think actually the opposite what we saw, they were much more active, much more vigilant, much more reactive. And um, so I would say they look exactly the opposite. Uh, Mm. So, yeah, they didn't look like they were (laughs) losing sleep at all. (laughs) Okay, so did the animals that lost the most sleep and became more active, were they more successful in the mating? Uh, So, yeah, we couldn't really measure that directly so we couldn't measure the offspring so how much offspring was coming out but what we measure is the testosterone uh so the testosterone came out to be a a good indicator of the change of activity so that the males they were uh, more active they were also the male that had the highest increase in testosterone during the breeding season boy (laughs) losing sleep Upping the activity, more testosterone, sounds like they're really getting ready for this one shot at their mating season. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what happens after the mating season is over? Uh, so after the mating season is over, in general, um, yeah, all the males died and the female raised the, the offspring. And um, what has been recently observed is apparently there is some cannibalism that is happening in the species. <laughs> um, cannibalism? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. It's a, a, a new paper that it just came out last week uh, from um, Andrew Becker and, and his group, and it seems that they observed an animal in the wild that was uh, cannibalizing another of the same species well, if cannibalism is happening, who's eating who? They don't know who was the cannibal, if the cannibal was a female or another male. is a very interesting observation. I would say probably not completely uh, surprising because, um, because these animals are carnivorous. And at the end of their breeding season, especially the male, they are very, very compromised and in poor health conditions and they are crazy to find some food so probably could be an opportunistic behavior of one male that is about to die and he really needs energy and this is what this um, the group this researcher are hypothesizing but could also be a female that is actually finding some very easy energy Boy. <laughs> Boy, the males uh, really have a tough time here. <laughs> yeah. Useful useful to the death, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Ms. Zaid, thank you so much for your time. Thanks a lot for having me. Erica Zaid is a wildlife biologist at La Trobe University in Australia. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings, host of The Big Story. For six years now, we've been telling one story a day, every one of them about something that matters to Canadians. This spring, though... We're going deeper. The Big Story presents 
Hater, the inside story of Ontario's Greenbelt scandal. From political games to stag and doe parties, endangered species, RCMP investigations, and Las Vegas massages, you will hear the full story. The Big Story presents Pay Dirt. New episodes every Monday, and you can get them all by following The Big Story wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Bob McDonald, and you're listening to Quirks and Quarks on CBC Radio 1. Coming up later in the program, Like Moths to a Flame. How insects are trying to use your porch light to know which way is up. If you're flying around, you're pulling all of these G-forces, it's really not clear which way is up. You can't just feel gravity. You have to rely on something else. And it looks like insects really rely on the direction of light, even at night. Ask anyone whose job it is to communicate about climate change, like a scientist or a science journalist, and they'll tell you that it can be a tough thing to talk about. Even though polls show that most Canadians accept that climate change is a concern, when we talk about things like melting glaciers, worsening storms, rising waters, and warming temperatures, some people tend to tune out. Which is a problem. Because to find solutions to something that affects the whole planet, we kind of have to talk about it. A new study aims to tackle these communication challenges. Psychologist Madalena Vlastiano worked with a team of 250 researchers and involved over 59,000 participants from 63 countries to figure out the best way to talk about climate change in order to inspire climate action. Dr. Vlastiano is an assistant professor in New York University's Department of Psychology. Hello and welcome to our program. Hello, thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure and an honor to be here. Now, why did you want to look at climate change psychology? That's a great question. So, of course, we are in a global crisis that threatens the very life on Earth. So this actually might just be the most consequential and challenging of problems that humans have ever faced. And so as behavioral scientists, we decided to put ourselves in the shoes of practitioners and policymakers to really understand what they would need from us to put together an effective disaster response. Well, what makes talking about climate change such a challenge? Uh, Talking about climate change is unpleasant. It triggers feelings of threat. It is uh, inducive of negative emotions. There's potentially a little bit of guilt involved um, and definitely a lot of just fatigue over over hearing about it over and over again and and things Mm -hmm. only worsening. So how is your study different from any other climate psychology projects we've seen? This study is different in that it is massive in scope of almost 60,000 people in 63 countries. Uh, So what we did is we tried to conduct a truly global study to understand how to best communicate this emergency to the public in a way that is most conducive to meaningful action. Uh, We concluded we actually need to figure out what we know so far about human behavior in the context of climate change, and then figure out what are our best psychological mechanisms that we know can spur action. And then we compare them to each other in this head-to-head comparison to be able to say concretely what works best in each context. Well, take me through some of the uh, interventions or actions that you were testing to get people to talk about climate change. Of course. So uh, some of the interventions simply informed people of the outstanding proportion of others 
who are very concerned about climate change. These uh, types of interventions build on the idea that most of us underestimate how many others are concerned. And we underestimate this by about half. So even though about 80% of us are really concerned, we think that proportion is actually half. Other interventions inform people of the actual consequences of climate change in their own region. So for some regions, the problem is wildfires or other regions, the problem is flooding. And so we tell people what their own personal concrete climate risks are. Well, take me through your results. What did you find worked the best? Yeah, so the most successful interventions were actually the ones that made clear to people what the consequences of climate change are for themselves, concretely in their own immediate regions. So we shouldn't be afraid to talk about the consequences of the crisis. In fact, people need to understand the magnitude of the threat concretely for themselves. And then also very successful interventions were those that had people write letters to their children explaining their actions today to make sure the planet is still livable in two to three decades. Um, And so these were the kinds of interventions that we see increased people's beliefs in the threat and also support for climate mitigation policy the most. Oh, I see. So uh, it's, it's stuff like, oh, there are forest fires in your area last summer, so it's affecting you directly. You could lose your house. Exactly. And that's because a lot of us tend to think about climate change as this really distant threat that will hurt somebody else, somewhere else, maybe even in the future. And so it's not made concrete for us. Why should we truly care? And we should because we are all going to be affected in some way very soon, if not already. Now, you talk about writing a letter to their children. Are they they writing to the future? How does that work? Yeah, exactly. We have participants imagine, think about a a socially close child and think about that child reading this letter in 30 years when they're an adult. And then the participant's job is to put on paper the actions they're doing today to make sure that that future adult has a safe place to live. And we find that this activity of actually sitting down and concretely thinking, what am I doing today to ensure that this child uh, lives in a, in a relatively safe environment? Um, we find that that's very effective at increasing participants' support for climate mitigation policy of the sort, moving away, for example, from fossil fuels and into green energy. Now, your study was global, so how were the results different from different regions, different economic backgrounds, etc.? Uh, this is a great question. What we present here is the aggregate effect. But of course, there are high differences between countries, between ages, between genders, between income levels and education levels. So, for example, we looked at highly educated conservatives in the United States. For them, the top intervention to increase climate policy support was thinking about their future selves. And this increased their policy support by 18%. But this intervention also worked for climate beliefs in Russian participants. However, the scientific consensus intervention increased climate policy support by 9% in Romania. However, it decreased it by 5% in Canada. Wow. So how can this information out of your survey be used to help encourage climate action? So truly what we would like to make sure is that policymakers understand what works 
best in their own target audience. And then they can define that as specifically as they need to. And then they can use our web app to query the interventions and understand for this particular region and this particular demographic, how would we best talk about climate change in a way that would resonate with these people? And so this study, I think, alleviates some of these concerns around talking about these topics because it shows that people will engage. Well, do you think it's possible to get everyone on the same page, considering how challenging this issue seems to be in different parts of the world? Of course. As with any high-stakes situation, it will be difficult to get everyone on the same page. And it might not even be necessary for absolutely everyone to be on the same page, but the decision makers have to be on the same page. And for that to happen, people need to advocate for themselves. And vast majorities are already doing that. We observe in our study, 85% of this global sample is already highly concerned about climate change. And over 70% of them support global mitigation policy. And this means that policymakers can (laughs) feel free to enact some meaningful policy change because the public is behind them. Dr. Velasciano, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Bob. It was wonderful chatting with you. Dr. Madalena Velasciano is an assistant professor in New York University's Department of Psychology. One of the exciting things we've learned about the solar system as our probes have explored the other planets is that, by and large, it's pretty wet. Water, the substance most scientists think of as key to life, turns out to be pretty common. But what's more exciting than just how frequently we find it is how often it's been discovered in liquid form, rather than frozen into ice by the cold of space. Because it's water in its liquid form that should be useful for life. The latest example of this is one of the most unlikely ones yet. Scientists studying data from NASA's Cassini spacecraft have found evidence of liquid water on Saturn's tiny moon, Mimas. It's a satellite that's been dubbed the Death Star Moon, and if water can be found there, it might be anywhere. Dr. Valerie Linnae is an astronomer at the Paris Observatory. He led the team. Hello, and welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Hello. Nice to meet you. First of all, tell me about Mimas. Why is it called the Death Star Moon? Well, it gets a huge crater called the Airshell Crater. And clearly, if you see a picture of Mimas, you will definitely think about the Death Star. I mean, it's pretty amazing. It looks similar. How, how big is the moon? What's it look like? So it's typically uh, 400 kilometers in diameter. So it's much smaller than the, the big moons like Titan, for instance, or the Galleon satellites, which can be at the level of a, a few uh, thousands of kilometers. Wow. 400 kilometers in Canada. That's about the distance between uh, Toronto and Ottawa. That's, that's <laughs> not very much. Other than that giant crater, uh, what's the rest of its surface like? So um, Mimas is heavily cratered. So you have craters everywhere. So it looks like a very, I would say, uh, desolated place. Um, It looks pretty old. Uh, It's not necessarily very old, but we used to believe for a very long time that it was very old because heavily cratered. So it's definitely not the kind of place we would expect to have liquid water. Hmm. So other than its small size and its giant crater, what's unusual? What distinguishes Mimas from other moons in the Saturn system? 
Actually, the Saturn system is fascinating because you have a lot of moons. Um, you have eight uh, main moons, so-called main moons. You have several small moons that are even closer to Saturn. You have those big rings, as you know, for Saturn too. And from that point of view, Mimas is just one moon among the other ones, except that uh, you want to compare Mimas with another moon called Enceladus, which is roughly the same size, roughly the same composition, roughly the same distance to Saturn, but which looks completely different. And it's really more the comparison between Mimas and Enceladus that is fascinating and was quite a kind of challenge for scientists for decades. Now, Enceladus, uh, that's the moon that has geysers uh, shooting water out into space. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. Its surface, it gets a very smooth terrain because you have resurfacing, which means that you have icy material from the interior. So the surface of Enceladus is pretty young, so you have barely craters. Okay, so if Mimas has this heavily cratered surface instead of the nice smooth one that Enceladus does, what made you think that Mimas might be harboring liquid water under its surface? Well, nothing. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing, except that we decided to look at Mimas. Actually, we started in 2010, and it's very interesting because at that time, we were more um, investigating the Saturnian rings, and especially the so-called Cassini division. It's basically an absence of material in the icy rings. We wanted to understand what formed the Cassini division. Why is it there? And so we said, well, maybe Mimas is not the, the object we, th- we think it is. And the first really work uh, that was published with this idea was the work by uh, uh, Radwan Tejidin, who was a PhD student working here at the Press Observatory. And he looked at the rotation of Mimas, so the spin of Mimas. And he found out that the rotation of Mimas gets some kind of extra oscillations on this uniform rotation. And this one of these oscillations was larger than what is generally expected. We uh, obtained this kind of two conclusions, two possibilities. One is that uh, the interior of Mimas is rigid, as we thought it was, um, but it gets a very elongated silicate core, rocky core, under the icy crust. That was one possibility. And the other possibility, which was much more exciting, is that you may have a global ocean under the icy crust. And so by using Cassini data, we're just seeing the surface of Mimas slipping at the top of the ocean, and this extra oscillation of the rotation was the crust slipping at the top of the of the ocean. Wow. Okay, let me see if I got this right. You're saying that this this moon it, it, oscillation, you mean when it's turning, it's not turning smoothly? It's got a sort of a back and forth motion to it as it's rotating? And that, yes, please, that, yeah. that could be the, the crust floating on the ocean, sloshing back and forth? Is that what's going on? Yeah, this is what is going on. So that the case of Mimas, it's really the same fate to Saturn. So it gets a kind of uniform rotation, which is exactly equal to its orbital motion around Saturn. But over this uniform rotation, you have extra oscillations back and forth. And this is this extra oscillation that we are looking at. So how does that then indicate that there's liquid water under the surface? But because you basically know the mass uh, of Mimas, you have an idea of the, its interior. We know it gets a rocky core and icy crust. Uh, we know its shape. And once you uh, cr- um, look at all this information together and want to d- describe the, its possible interior, then you compare that with the rotation and you find out that there is just two possibilities, this elongated core forcing this extra oscillation to be as large as observed 
or the icy crust that slips back and forth, and uh, in that case, explaining why you have this extra larger oscillation. Now, what went through your mind when you realized that Mimas could contain an ocean? Well, we're very excited, and especially I want to emphasize that most of the community was convinced that the silicate core was the proper answer. Why should it get an ocean very recently? These kind of things. What does this mean for the possibility of life in that water? Well, to be honest, I think nobody knows, but what we can tell at least is that this global ocean is in contact with the rocky core, so you have possibilities of a complex chemistry. In average, the temperature is roughly zero degrees, so it's pretty low, but really when you're close to the core, you can have pretty good uh, temperatures for life development and this complex chemistry. So how much time do we need to have life? No, I think nobody knows. And you might say that 15 million of years is probably too recent. But I would still say that we don't know what is the age of Mimas. That is something that probably should be studied in the, in the coming years. Well, if you found uh, liquid water in an unlikely moon like Mimas, uh, what does this mean for how common liquid water could be in other unlikely places in the solar system? Well, that's the big result. And now that we know that even Mimas gets a global ocean, more than half of its volume is filled by liquid water. That's huge. So we probably could argue that you might have liquid water at many, many, many places in the solar system and in the universe where we believe it would be impossible. From that is a really game changer on that part uh, of uh, habitability. Dr. Linet, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That was Dr. Valerie Linet, an astronomer at the Paris Observatory. In The Merchant of Venice, Shakespeare wrote, Thus hath the candle singed the moth. That was written in 1592. Even that long ago, and likely stretching back much further, we've known that moths and other insects seem to be attracted to our artificial light, whether it's from a candle flame or a porch light. So it may surprise you that we actually still don't know why they do this bizarre behavior. Now, a new study is um, <clears throat> shedding light on this millennia-old mystery. Dr. Sam Fabian is a research associate at Imperial College London in the UK. He co-led the study. Dr. Fabian, welcome to our program. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Now, before your study, what did we think we knew about why insects are attracted to artificial light? Well, we had no shortage of theories. We had lots and lots of ideas, and they include things like insects at night confused lights with gaps through foliage. So they were trying to fly through foliage because they thought this light was seeing the sky through, through a tree or something like that. Or maybe a more common one that some of your listeners will have been familiar with is that insects that were migrating long distances at night would use something like the moon as a compass cue, keeping it in a kind of fixed area. You're trying to keep it at the same angle and then travel next to it. And that keeps you going in a straight line over a really long distance because as you move, the moon stays more or less in the same place relative to you. And that's that's great. But that should ex you should expect to see all kinds of spirals and all kinds of weird behavior if that were the case. And that's not really what we saw. Now, besides moths, what other insects are attracted to light or, or at least go to it? Well, that was the really remarkable thing. So if you stick a light out at night, you get all kinds of things show up. And these are really deeply divergent groups. So these are insects that have been separated from each other and have been on their own evolutionary path for a really, really long period of time. And that includes flies, wasps, bees. Uh, you can get butterflies as well as moths arriving at these traps at night. And actually, 
over the course of our experiments, we found that dragonflies as well, some of the most anciently splitting off groups of insects, would also show this behavior. They would get entrapped at light at night. Well, tell me about your study. What did you do to try to solve the mystery? Well, really, what we did first is try and film what is happening in the air, what these insects are doing in the air as they fly near this light. So we set off into Costa Rica, because if you're going to do field work, why not do it in Costa Rica, uh, <laughs> which was fantastic. And then we set these lights up in the middle of the forest. So we sat there in this pool of light. And we're, we're, we've got this really high-end, high-speed, and so that means they're filming in slow-motion cameras next to us. And we're filming with two cameras at the same time. They're taking images at the same time. And that means that we can reconstruct the depth. And so we will look at the paths that they were taking and what their bodies were doing in the air. As well as going to the field, we did do some lab work as well. And when we're working in the lab, what we were doing is motion capture. Now, motion capture is used in film, cinema, and also a lot in the games industry when you're trying to animate characters. And what you do is you glue little markers all over them. And these markers are retro-reflective. And what that means is they bounce light back. The camera can really tell where these markers are super quickly and easily. Well, we took this idea and we miniaturized it and made it really, really small so that we could glue these markers to the back of an insect. And the thing is, that not only tells us where the insect is, but it also tells us the orientation. We can tell if it's flying sideways, upside down, or the right way up. Now, how do you go about gluing reflective markers onto a moth? Um, Through hours of agony and care and painstaking, you know, frustration. I mean, it's not all that. It's also glorious when it works, but it, it, it's tough. But the very first thing that we do is is we try to chill the body of the animal down. So, so if you put the insect on ice, you can just cool them down, they'll go to sleep. And that allows us to attach the markers to the back of the insect using just a tiny, tiny little drop of superglue. And then when the insect wakes up, ideally, it doesn't even know the markers are there. Okay, so when you put all of this together, what did you see when you looked at your high-speed motion capture video? Well, really, as soon as we started getting these slow-motion videos of these insects flying around the lights, we could start to see what was happening. And the very first thing that was the kind of most noticeable thing was that as the insect flew forwards and over a light bulb, it would flip itself upside down and then crash down out the air. Now, that's actually something that's not predicted by any of the current theories that we had about insects and light at night. So why would they be flipping themselves upside down? And then we looked at other kind of weird behaviors that the insects are doing in the air. And all of them seem to involve tipping the back of the insect towards the light. So that the insect is trying to get the light over its back. Now, we actually know it's also true of fish and squid. They also tilt their backs towards light. And it's because they use the light to work out which way is up. Ah. And so if you're flying around, you're pulling all of these G-forces, it's really not clear which way is up. You can't just feel gravity. You have to rely on something else. And it looks like insects really rely on the direction of light, even at night, because the sky is still brighter than the ground, even at night. They use that to work out which way is up. Okay. So then when they pass the light, if you're, if you're flying and you turn your back to the light, that puts you into a bank. You, start, you go into a curve. That's exactly what we think is happening. Yeah. So that's that's one of the motifs we saw was orbiting. And that's where they're going in this circle around the light. Now, if you're out in the field or you're outside, there's going to be all kinds of air currents and wind that's kind of kind of push insects into weird patterns. And, and this interaction becomes quite almost looking random. But in the lab, what we saw is if I took a dragonfly and I flew it around a bulb, it would sit in this perfect circle 
for minutes and minutes at a time, travelling at the same flight speed. All the time, as far as we're aware, the insect thinks it's flying forwards, but actually is flying in a very tight circle because it's confused as to which way is up. Boy, so the light is acting kind of like a, a trap for them. That's exactly what we think is happening. This is a sensory trap. This They... they get stuck in the light. It's, it's a bit like a pitfall trap or a net that's just sat there waiting to get, get them stuck. And also then if they then crash and they crash land into the ground, it's very difficult for them to take off again and they get confused as to which way is up again. But also these are insects that want to be flying at night. So things like moths. Now, if they're sat there underneath the light, well, the body's telling them it's daytime and they'll start going to sleep. Their eyes will adjust to the light and they'll, they'll stay still. And they'll miss out on an entire night's worth of foraging for food, looking for mates. And so it really affects them. Boy. Now, did the direction of the light make a difference to how the insects responded to it? So this was a really important part of the study. It was trying to work out, okay, so if this is true, can we fix it? Can, can we create or like, can we throw light around in a way that doesn't confuse the insect? And the way in which we did that was to shine a light up onto a big white sheet stretched across the forest canopy. And so what that means is you've still got really bright light for night, but it's above the insects that are flying underneath it. And what we saw is that insects could fly around just fine underneath this canopy of light because it looks like the sky. It's matching their expectation. Up is up to them. But if you took that same sheet and that same light and had it on the ground underneath them, the insects would flip themselves upside down, crash into the ground, and then were just completely unable to leave the sheet on the ground. So it's the same sheet, same same light, but it really depended whether it was below them or above them. Wow. Well, we keep hearing about dramatic insect declines. So is there a way to use this information about their behavior around lights that can help protect insect populations? Light at night is not only damaging to insects, it's damaging to lots and lots of our nocturnal wildlife. And so understanding this is, I think, really important to how we can mitigate those effects, just as you say. I think what this study tells us is the direction of light is really important. And so what we can probably start doing is shrouding lights. And so that's kind of covering them so that really the light is only shining where we need there to be light. And it's not chucking light sideways and especially not chucking light up straight up into the atmosphere, where that's going to cause insects flying overhead to rain out because they're going to flip themselves upside down. They're going to come straight out the sky and land on the ground. So hopefully we can start to counteract those effects. But it also emphasizes that light at night is pollution, and we should think of it as pollution. It's often pollution we can't do without. But all the same, we should bear that in mind and think about the way in which we install lights. Dr. Fabian, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Bob. It's been terrific. Dr. Sam Fabian is a postdoctoral researcher at Imperial College London in the UK. And that's it for Quirks and Quarks this week. If you'd like to get in touch with us, our email is quirks at cbc.ca or just go to the contact link on our webpage at cbc.ca slash quirks where you can read my latest blog or listen to our audio archives. You can also follow our podcast or get us on the CBC Listen app. It's free from the App Store or Google Play. Quirks and Quarks is produced by Rosie Fernandez, Amanda Buckowitz, and Sonia Biting. Our senior producer is Jim Lebens. I'm Bob McDonald. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.